Welcome to Small Islands Big Conversations, the Institute for Small Islands podcast. I'm Caroline Mertobi, and this is the second part of the Roberto Mucaro Borrero interview with Cacique Roberto Mucaro Borrero from Puerto Rico. Enjoy. Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to Small Islands Big Conversations with the Institute for Small Islands. My name is Caroline Mertobi, and I'm the founder and director of the Institute. And I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Roberto Mucaro Borrero, who is joining us here from the United States. And we are currently in Trinidad, I'd like to say. And so welcome, Mr. Borrero. Thank you so much for having me, Caroline. I really appreciate uh, being here and having this opportunity uh, to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so wonderful to have you here. And we had this wonderful conversation last week. And I would like to invite you to go and check out that interview. If you have not, I've given a full, detailed in, uh, introduction to Mr. Barrero and his many, many achievements. And um, I just want to kind of jump right in here, Mr. Barrero, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Not a problem at all. Okay. So I just want to, I want to Pause a moment on the fact that you are a cacique. How many years have you been a cacique? Well, um, I was formerly, uh, I had a ceremony uh, to formalize the, the title in uh, 2012. And uh, ceremonies took place on the island of uh, Boriquen or Puerto Rico, as well as in uh, the United States. And um, it uh, was known, uh, we, we described it as an investiture ceremony, meaning that the community was uh, investing in me the tools uh, for leadership, uh, as our uh, ancestors have done and uh, in, in times past. And so um, it, was a, it was a big decision for me to accept when the community was asking me to take on the role. Uh, this is not something that someone just applies to themselves and... Uh, you know, runs with it. If if you're following the traditional protocols, uh, really, it's the the elder women in the community who kind of make that decision uh, upon leadership, mm -hmm. and they uh, make that request. And you know, like uh, uh, like in other decisions, you always have the opportunity to say no. And I, and I had said no previously because it's it's a big responsibility. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not something that I take lightly, or, uh, I know it's not something that my ancestors took lightly because, um, you're really representing a community and a people ideals, and, uh, you're really trying to find a way to keep these things, uh, this way of, of life and, and, and thought into the future. So, uh, it puts, uh, some additional strain, considerable strain on your family, uh, because you're, you know, essentially becoming a fa another family member, an integral family member to many other people. And um, you have to deal with also the political ramifications of, of this type of, uh, of this type of movement in your life. And meaning that, you know, once you put yourself out there or once it's, it's kind of identified, uh, you know, that you have this title, you're open like any other political figure in a way you're open to to attacks and, and, and things of that nature. So um, it took a little bit of a while. I discussed this with, with my wife, Jocelyn, and, and my family. My, my daughters were, were uh, much younger at the time, so they didn't know really much of what was going on. They were just, you know, to be a part of it. My son was a little older, 
but we did discuss it, and, and finally I decided to say uh, yes. And it was really under the, um, with the understanding that, you know, I would continue for a certain amount of years, then we would kind of uh, see where we were at as a community and decide if they wanted me to continue in this role or not. And uh, as I said, you know, this this began in, in officially in, in 2012. And, um, you know, I still retain the, the title for the Guaynia community today. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And, um, you know, a leader is not just somebody who just, uh, in this sense, using that term, uh, cacique, it's really uh, um, the term also talks about our cosmovision, about the importance of the sun. It really means sun covered, like a blessing from the sun. And uh, that's mm -hmm. what the term uh, translates to. And it's it's really about, you know, taking that role, that guidance role, but, you know, always being available to listen and uh, to work with the community to find ways forward. And so that doesn't mean uh, tyrannical rule uh, or... It, it means, you know, speaking with people and, and really trying to build consensus as, as best you can. And so um, I, I feel that that's the way it conducted themselves. And I try to hold these ideals today. So can you tell me a little bit more? You mentioned the elder woman make the decision. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, there's a, there's a story uh, in Taino culture that talks about... Uh, a particular man named by Guyahona, and uh, he had gotten into some issues, and in other words, that he wasn't the best role model around. And as a result of that, he also suffered some trials and tribulations, you know, kind of like uh, you get what you give uh, type of thing. And uh, so he he was in bad shape physically, and. Um, he was near the end of his of his line, uh, lifeline, and uh, there appeared uh, to him a woman. And, uh, you know, there's some talk in the community as if she was, uh, you know, more of a, of a spirit deity or an actual woman. But mm -hmm. um, we call her Guabonito. And um, she came and uh, she took him to a place that's called a, a guanara. It means like a place apart. And she conducted a, a ceremony for, for him and, and healed him of his wounds. And and at the end of that trial and, and that healing that he went through, uh, she presented him with some uh, particular items and, and implements that would um, that would convey the leadership responsibility that he was being he was walking into. And that came with a bit of a change of his name as well. Uh, in other words, it was like a, a new birth for him. And then, uh, you know, following that, he becomes more of a cultural hero. And uh, so there's this there's this idea that uh, in the story of, of uh, redemption for people, of healing, mm -hmm. of the role of, of the woman who conveys these articles of, of leadership to this man. And so after he goes through, through those ceremonies, uh, then he receives this new name. And he's kind of identified as as one of the first caciques, right? And so that's that's the story. So when we uh, come now to this time, you know, that role of Guabonito, you know, is really about these women coming together, again, uh, making this decision uh, like Guabonito did uh, back in those days, and then uh, presenting to 
to this potential leader these uh, certain implements and, and uh, artifacts and and, uh, and and just tools uh, for leadership. So mm -hmm. uh, among those uh, that was uh, presented was a guanin, which is a, a kind of a, a medallion, uh, a gold type medallion. Now our people were um, used to gold and copper, and they work with those materials at that time. And and that gold medallion actually was uh, was a symbol of leadership, even more than a headdress or anything else that was really conveyed. I'm sorry, I don't have mine here handy. I was going to ask I, you, where is it? Where's the gold medallion? I'll have to go to another room to get it, and and uh, you know I, I could show it to you. Um, okay. But, so yeah. if we take a break, I'll run and get it so you could see it. But that's one of the things, uh, you know, other uh, were implements that are used for a ceremonial rattle, uh, which we call mm -hmm. maraca. It's not a Spanish yes, word, yeah. but uh, a word. We have those in Trinidad, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes, and, and uh, there's some of the other communities, they also call it a shak shak, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, we call it a maraca in, 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 our, in our language. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, there's items like this that are presented, and um, that's like the symbols of, of, of leadership. So that's that's where uh, that connection to the elder women in the community comes. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic, and uh, so not quite matrilineal, but matrifocal, perhaps. Yes, I, I think that there's um, there's a lot of discussion about matrilineal culture and, and what that means, and and mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's these days uh, because there's this um, you know real understanding of of the the negative and the the devastating effects of uh, European patriarchy, right, upon us, white, you know, that links in with racism yeah. and white supremacy that, that people have also, in my view, also elevated this ideal of matriarchy and, and, and the idea of, of what that is. Uh, from, from, from my perspective and, and in discussions with the community, you know, what, what I understand is that, um, you know, matriarchy in our, in our community has to do more with genealogy meaning the lines of of the leaders of the community, meaning following a leadership line when there was that mm -hmm. real focus on hereditary leadership and uh, you know how that how that is how that is conveyed. But um it wasn't that the women were ruling the community or mm -hmm. you know that who had the in other words that um the communities really didn't have like um really this dictatorial mm. positions, yeah. right? And and it would be on either kind side. Kind of a balance and a yeah, council and a community. We're, we're striving more for balance. And, and you see that in everything that our Taino culture presents from the art to to the way that we worked on things. And yes, most often times you would see males in the role of, of, of cacique, but there are times in, in the historical record that show also that there were some women. Now, this is not a widespread but th there were also women caciques who were uh, very well respected, and uh, you know the Spanish the Spaniards didn't respect them that much. But uh, within the communities from our side, the indigenous yeah. side, yes. So again, um, you know, I think that we have to be careful with with the trends, and uh, for yeah. us as indigenous peoples, you know, not to to uh, push things even further out of balance with with kind of. Um, ideals that are more influenced by what's going on today than our actual culture right so that so i think that you know rather mm -hmm. than um focusing on one although yes 
you know, totally, there would be no, no hesitation about the role and the importance of women in, in our community. I just think that as a Taino, we are more concerned with balance. And that's why uh, women had that role in, uh, you know, choosing that leadership. So even if it was hereditary, they would still have to uh, acknowledge that and, and they would still have to be uh, sanctioned, right, by, by them. And so, um, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, the leader of a community is also you know, endowed as a result of that uh, sanctioning to, to be, a, a, you know, a leader in decision-making as, as well. And not to exclude consultation, not to exclude um, the idea of, of community coming together to discuss, but, you know, the leadership roles have to be respected for what they are. And just like any other role in the, in the community has to be mm -hmm. respected. All people have to be respected. That's, that's really a foundation of... So pure know, meritocracy, earning it, no yes, matter who you are. I would say so. And mm -hmm. at least that's how I, I, was, I learned about it and and uh you know i haven't really seen anything to to change my mind in another way mm -hmm. so tell me about your journey if you don't mind me asking how did you um because you have i'm pulling up the list now you have spoken to the un you have spoken so on behalf of the international indian treaty council you served as the international indigenous people's forum on climate change, North American Indigenous Delegation Coordinator to the UNFCCC's, um, the UN Climate Change Negotiations, for those who don't know, COP21, that's the big meeting that's all over the news, held in Paris in 2015. And that was the big conference, you know, um, that was the Paris Agreement. So, you know, tell me how you, you, uh, you also served as a co-moderator for the first historic activity of the local communities and indigenous peoples platform under the UNFCCC, which is an outcome of the Paris Agreement. So how did you, you know, you, you are Cacique Morero, you are, you know, you are you. How did you end up there? How did you start there? Did you, did you start out thinking I was going to be a Cacique <laughs> and talk to the UN? Not at all. And uh, as I said, even, you're an artist, aren't you? And a musician. I, I started out uh, more as, um, you know, like, like many others that come through our communities. Uh, I, I feel that I was fortunate in that, you know, I was told from my family at a very young age about my heritage. So that seed was planted. And that doesn't mean that it really affected much of my life, meaning as a kid who wants to grow up and, and be like everybody else and not be singled out or, or things like that, of that nature. Although sometimes, you know, we do get singled out, you know, you know with racism and, and, and other things. And I did experience that um, as a person of color and uh, going through life. And, and, and I remember was that in Boricen or in the U.S.? Sorry. In the U.S. In the U.S. Yeah, and I remember one one kid just not even understanding like what I was. <laughs> in other words, like you know, you're not <laughs> black. You're not. You know, what are you? You know, like who? You know, just and they were so angry about it, right? And yeah. and uh, you know, so uh, it, it's interesting. But I think that uh, for me, w one incident that happened in in high school in the U.S. Um, that really kind of set me on a path to at least look more into my my heritage was um, when they got into this discussion about Columbus, 
uh, it was like, well, Columbus came over in 1492. And then the next thing you know, we were talking about the Aztecs, the Incas, and, and the Mayas, mm -hmm. and, and others. And really, the whole section of, of Caribbean, that a Caribbean encounter was not seen as relevant, right? Our story was the yeah. race. So I, re I remember um, questioning that in school and and then the teacher saying, well, that's because those people got wiped out. They didn't really make any contributions. And uh, and that really surprised me. I said, yeah. that's not true because, you know, I'm from this heritage. And, and uh, you know, it set up a little incident. And, and uh, what did the teacher say? What did the teacher say? Well, they, they said, well, you're mistaken and, and things like that. So, yeah. And, it's, you know, this is not something that that is an isolated incident over the years. That's a powerful thing for a young person to hear. You are mistaken. You don't exist anymore. Like, and, and you how, what impact did that have? Well, it made me very angry, right? It yeah. made me very angry. It also um, really impacted my view of the educational system, uh, meaning how could they say this and and. It, it, but it also sets up a dilemma in your mind because, you know, as, as you say, um, you mentioned the, uh, this idea of matriarchy and, you know, here in, in, in my family, you know, respecting my mother and my grandmother, uh, who were among those who told me about my heritage, although my grandmother was not a college educated person, she did know many other things and, and shared many other had many other attributes that uh, from her own experience of life, yes, right. And she was like, she was a smart person, yeah. And um, you know, but so when you go to school, right, your parents to tell you, okay, go to school, behave yourself, remember, listen to the teacher. They they set them up with these authority figures in in a way, and you're supposed to give them respect. But when you hear something like that, it also sets up a dilemma in your mind because. We're also taught to see our family with with respect and, and and reverence, and then so you say, okay, so the teacher's telling me that this is basically a lie. What what my family was saying that we're that we really don't have this heritage, and then I'm looking back at my grandmother or or my mother and thinking, well, you know, here I am supposed to respect them and what they tell me is the truth, but yet I'm also supposed to respect this teacher. It sets up a, like a little conflict in your mind. Wow, yeah. At least I didn't fall for that conflict, and, and I was very adamant that, no, that you're the one who's mistaken, and, you know, we are, you know, the descendants of those people who Columbus met. And so I kind of after that, that incident stayed with me for a while, but I, honestly, I didn't really do anything more with it for, for quite some time. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had my own personal demons to wrestle with over the years that are also probably uh, linked to in some way the effects of colonialism, I, I would imagine, and, and, and how we see ourselves and, you know, not being seen or having our story erased and, and uh, you know, um, being seen as an other uh, in, in many instances. So... I'm sure that's all played into it, is, is among other things. But you know, later on, as I started to um, get a little bit older and started to venture out and encounter other indigenous peoples, um, I never, I never really had an issue with other indigenous peoples, like kind of saying, "Hey, you know, where are you from? Who are your people?" or things like that. Mm -hmm. I never felt really so adequate because I didn't really, uh, I, I knew I had those seeds planted, but. It's not like they sit you down and, and say, here are your Taino lessons or here are your <laughs> lessons. You just kind of you have to find it. You, and plus you have to pick up what's going on around you and seeing that even if it's yeah. not outward teachings, you know, the foods that we cook, the things that we do, you know, these are linked back to our, our indigenous heritage. And, and 
if even if we're not saying that overt, we are getting the lessons and, and we are connecting to things in that way. It's just, you know, we're just too distracted to, to realize it with the state of the world. So um, as I started coming into uh, more contact with other indigenous peoples, um, being invited to ceremonies and things like that, I, I, I felt the real need to try to reach out to my own folks. And uh, slowly but surely, I, I would meet other Tainos at, at the festivals and, and other, other cultural activities that, that happened and uh, that, were, that were occurring. And uh, I connected to uh, larger movements of, of people, organizations and associations. And uh, that really started me uh, on my way. But I, I, you know, I didn't go to school for this. I was very against school actually, in my younger years, uh, because of the experiences that I had, I felt that it was just really, uh, you know, like this this uh, process to assimilate us even further. So I, I had these very radical ideas. Um, well, I guess what could be considered radical now, you know, some people are thinking that that's really not radical and then really the response that we should have to, colon to colonialism and the, you know, and the the efforts to decolonize our, ourselves, right? Not and radical that, at all. That's really what it's about, right? It's about uh, this constant um, decolonization process of self, of community, of and and of others. So, um, right around the the end of the '90s, uh, into the early 1990s, the UN was deciding to uh, celebrate or commemorate, rather, um, the first International Year of the World's Indigenous Peoples. And um, this was happening right around the, the quincentennial celebrations for Columbus. And um, yes, what yes, happened is, is, as far as I, I understand how the story went from the inside, is that the uh, country of Spain had proposed, uh, you know, the, the UN often does these international years and international decades as a, a way to focus on certain issues. So it mm -hmm. didn't start out with, an international year of the world's indigenous peoples. It actually started out with uh, with the idea from Spain to talk about uh, a um, kind of commemoration of the quincentennial of the discovery of, of the Americas. And mm -hmm. uh, when they proposed that, uh, a number of countries uh, objected uh, to that uh, because of the institution of slavery, the genocide committed against indigenous peoples, um, and so that that idea was nixed, and uh, instead they decided to um, focus on a year for indigenous peoples, but to not cause too much uh, embarrassment for the country. Instead of holding this uh, observance uh, for indigenous peoples in 1992, uh, which just when the 500th anniversary was, uh, they decided to do that in the following year so that that focus was not on Spain in that way, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was the, I understand, was the compromise, and they moved forward on that. And there was various NGOs, and for folks who don't know what NGOs are, those are non-governmental organizations that were kind of activated uh, to be involved in this international year of the world's indigenous peoples. And so they have started mm -hmm. to have meetings across the across the street from uh, from the UN. Uh, they they have what they call the UN Church Center there, and there's a lot of activities that go on. And uh, you know these NGOs do a lot of uh, I guess essentially lobbying and awareness raising mm -hmm. and 
around because government officials come there and this is a way to hopefully affect or, or bring your issues to the forefront. So NGOs work in these capacities and, and they started to organize these meetings around the year. And so some of our folks had heard about this and uh, you know it was expensive for folks to come from the islands to participate just for these meetings that went on monthly. Or, and so um, because I, I started developing some notoriety in, in the community for, for artwork and things. Um, mm -hmm. Notoriety. Yeah, I guess, you know, people were starting to, you know, they kind of knew that I was there in New York. So yeah. um, mm -hmm. I was asked by elders in the community if I could attend the meetings and then report back to them on um, mm -hmm. what was happening and, and how they could be a, a part of it somehow. So I started going to those meetings, but really with, uh, with upfront uh, right away, I said, well, I don't know anything about the UN, nothing about politics, and I have really had no head for that at, at all. Uh, but I went. How old were you at that point? Uh, it's probably, it's, uh, you know, 90, 93, 93, maybe in my, my 20s, 30s, you know. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So you're not thinking about a diplomatic career at that point. <laughs> so and, uh, so um, I, I started going to the meetings and just listening. And uh, there was uh, some other... Uh, persons who had been involved in advocacy from other nations, not not from my nation, but a number of folks really, um, for some reason, took a liking to me and started uh, working with me and, and inviting me to more activities. And, and so I really kind of ended up rearranging my life and my lifestyle around this and learning this and, and going and starting to visit more communities. So it was really not only my own people, but other indigenous people, elders and, and community leaders who really mentored me at that time and brought me into the process and really helped me to better understand some things that I knew or some things that were inherent in me that, that did not come to the surface before, but somehow mm -hmm. I knew them and instinctively or ancestrally. And then really to learn a lot of new things about how to engage uh, in this type of process. So uh, I was invited to many, um, uh, not only indigenous gatherings, but also interfaith gatherings and others where they would invite indigenous peoples. And I would see how that interaction between religious and faith leaders uh, would take place. And that really impacted me. And uh, so little by little, um, I started to, to be more involved, uh, even with my own community, trying to take some of what I learned and bring it back to the folks. And so it was either imparting that information or really working, trying to work in building others who were in the diaspora and link them with community members and, and really build up a cultural base also in the diaspora. But mm -hmm. this was never something that was done in isolation uh, from the islands. I, I really, um, the jobs that I took at that time were really jobs to get by, you know, just financially and, and um, but also allowed me some flexibility so that I could do a lot of traveling and I would go back to Boriking as many as four times a year to participate in various cultural events or, or meetings or gatherings. And at, at this time, we really didn't know anything about the grant writing process. And uh, we weren't even, even for, for a very long time after that, we were not even able to really access that that process because no. nobody knew where to put us, right? Yeah. Were we American Indians? Were we um, 
Latinos where we, you know, so this, this all became, I mean, from our standpoint, we're indigenous peoples, we're Taino, and that comes before any other community that came in or intermixed with us, that we have that biological connection to those people who were on the islands before the Europeans. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is, is our, our main uh, point, right? To our yeah. nation. And uh, so, um, you know, at that time, everything was, was really our own fundraising, our own, you know, working for a couple of weeks, making that money go and, and using your own money to, to be involved in this. I don't know, you know, if that, if that, that, if the culture today would really allow something like that to happen for, for many, but it was, it was what was going on back then. So, you know, I really relied on folks from the community to, when I did arrive on the island or islands, uh, you know, people would put me up in their homes and and introduce me to community members, and I would go and riding around with folks, and so it was really a, a communal effort to help build that that those skills and that understanding and that cultural confidence, right, and that yeah. cultural competency, right. Uh, mm-hmm. So it really had to be an investment from both my side and the community side, and so eventually, um, you know, it leads you up into the, the where we are now, and you know, since then, you know, my 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 ideas and, and understanding have changed. I, I did go back uh, to college later on in life. And, and I took my kids mm-hmm. to go early because it's a pain in the neck when you go later. And uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, I did go receive some schooling because I, I, I understood that if I wanted to access some of these um, kind of ivory tower institutions like museums and, and make some kind of, um, some kind of, dent in the academic understanding of what happened in the Caribbean in particular to indigenous peoples, um, I would have to have some, you know, some academic training in, in, in that way. Uh, because they wouldn't listen to you otherwise, basically. Right. We, we wouldn't have it, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't listen. And that's really what happened to a lot of our folks mm-hmm. that, you know, we always knew mm-hmm. that, that we were here, but, but many of the history books say that, you know, we were wiped out within the first 50 years of, of, of conquest, right, of, of that colonial yeah. period. And yeah. uh, when you really look at the history and, and look at it with, uh, with an open mind and, and we're, we're trying to understand the both sides of the story, you really see that there's been a lot of manipulation in the academic record. Oh, my God, uh, so much, so much, so much, so much, like yeah. You don't exist. And really... Um, I'll give you I'll give you an example. In in, in 1898, mm. uh, when the U.S. Uh, came in, they were the second uh, wave of colonization that that hit the island after the Spaniards. It was the, it was the U.S. under the guise of uh, liberation. They they just took over the the, the colony, right? And uh, w- they did a survey, meaning that they wanted to go around and see what resources, you know, the, the spoils of the conquest, right? What resources are, are, are on the island? So they, they do a kind of an assessment, a census. And um, they really found that only in that time period, only two uh, to three percent of the entire population of the island in 1898 was what they would term literate, meaning they could read and write or read or write or, you know, one or the other, right? And so this history that was being promoted in the academic realm by these scholars, who are they really speaking to, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't speaking to our people if we were not really participating in those educational systems. They were speaking- You didn't exist, you're extinct. Right, right. And, and, and <laughs> really, speaking to you. That idea, 
of classism also comes in, right? That yeah. you know, the, the, the peasants and the peons, right? The peons mm-hmm. and, and the, the patrones, you know, mm-hmm. you would say the patrons or, or, you know, those people. So if, if, if there's a, a, a large segment of the population that is not accessing that education, that history that they're imparting over and over to each other, recirculating amongst each other is just their view, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of, what, of what will happen there. Small Islands Big Conversations is an Institute for Small Islands podcast. It comes to you with the support of Sadarn NGO, and it was produced and edited by Podlab Media. You can follow them on social media as at Podlab Media. If you are interested in knowing more about our work, find us at www.smallislandsinstitute.org. Thanks so much for listening.